I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Welcome to our special themed podcast on poetry and music. Poetry and music have been intertwined since the dawn of humanity, back when shamans chanted and pounded rocks over the bodies of the sick and fallen. In medieval times, troubadours wandered throughout Europe singing long narrative poems known as ballads. And in modern times, countless poets and musicians have found ways to collaborate, to merge their art forms. Our subject is vast, and we won't cover it all in a single podcast, but we have brought together a selection of interviews and recordings to begin our explorations. We'll start with a unique recording by Carl Sandberg of a poem song. Then we interview poet and singer-songwriter Brian Laidlaw and composer Ellie Rourke about their work setting poems to music. Finally, after the interviews, we hear performances from William Butler Yeats and Allen Ginsberg in musically poetic recordings from our friends at Penn Sound, the huge archive of recorded poetry at the University of Pennsylvania. In the early 20th century, the Midwest poet Carl Sandburg was successfully touring the country on the lecture circuit, talking about poetry and art and reading his original work. In 1910, he got the idea to buy a guitar and learn how to play it, and then he added music to his repertoire. Immediately, he saw a rise in his popularity, and the size of his audiences increased. Sandberg emphasized traditional Americana, songs like John Henry and the old cowboy ballad, A Riot in Old Paint. Over time, he developed a standard format for his program. He'd open with a bit of talking about poetry and art, then he'd read some of his original poems, and finally he'd round out the performance with 20 minutes or so of music. In our research for this program, we uncovered an example of Sandberg merging poetry and song in his recorded presentation of Cool Tombs. As you'll hear in this work, a poem song, as he reads the poem, he modulates the pitch of his voice up and down as if he were singing, yet he speaks the poem. Carl Sandberg, Cool Tombs. When Abraham Lincoln was shoveled into the tombs, he forgot the copperhead and the assassin in the dust, in the cool tombs. And Ulysses Grant lost all thought of con men and Wall Street. Cash and collateral turned ashes in the dust, in the cool tombs. Pocahontas' body, lovely as a poplar, sweet as a red haw in November or a pawpaw in May. Did she wonder, does she remember, in the dust, in the cool tombs? Take any street full of people buying clothes and groceries, cheering a hero or throwing confetti and blowing tin horns. Tell me if the lovers are losers. Tell me if any get more than the lovers. In the dust, in the cool. 
This is producer and technical director Jack Rossiter-Munley. Next on the show, we'll turn to my interview with Ellie Rourke. Ellie is a graduate of Marlborough College, where she studied poetry and music. She talks about her experience writing song settings for Robert Frost poems and discusses some of the opportunities and pitfalls of adding music to the written word. So first of all, say who you are and what you do related to this. Okay. <laughs> My name is Ellie Roark, and I graduated from Marlboro College where I studied music and poetry. Um, I did a project looking at the different ways that music and poetry are integrated and uh, in particular setting a series of Robert Frost poems. The project arose out of a dissatisfaction with a lot of um, classical and contemporary art song settings of poetry. I was interested in um, mimicking Frost's commitment to capturing the sound of speech in poetry by um, continuing that very colloquial spoken word feeling into a kind of contemporary art song setting with his poems. What constitutes an art song? What What is that? Is there a definition of that term? I don't know. That's a terrible question okay. to ask me. Not a terrible question on your part, but I just don't know the answer, really. I, I have a really hard time classifying the kind of music that I wrote. I guess, to me, what I was interested in was writing songs. I was interested in setting Frost poems to music in a way that made them feel colloquial and like songs and I use the phrase art song because they weren't particularly in the jazz idiom and they weren't particularly in the classical idiom though um, I wrote songs that leaned in both directions um, but I, I don't know exactly how to classify them and art song is kind of a catch-all category that includes a lot of poetry setting so and you say poetry setting what exactly is poetry setting what is that term poetry setting uh, poetry setting refers to um setting poems to music basically so when i talk about the setting i'm talking about in particular the way that the words line up with the melody cool and you mentioned a dissatisfaction with a lot of adaptations what did you find dissatisfying? I think a lot of composers um, are primarily concerned with their music and use maybe very moved by certain poems uh, feel like they want to use them in their music or incorporate them into their music somehow and you end up or just write for voices, um, and voices need lyrics for the most part. Um, so you end up with a lot of composers who are using these poems, and I think they use them quite poorly in that we lose the sense of the poem in and of itself as a poem. Um, we lose a lot of the sense of the original structure of the poem, of the flow of the words, of the original phrasing, and instead what we have are these kind of abstract 
tones, we maybe have some recognizable words, some recognizable phrases within most typical settings of poetry, but ultimately a total abstraction from the poem itself originally. And do you have any examples of that that come to mind? Well, I was working with Frost and one kind of particular famous Frost song cycle is by Randall Thompson, Frostiana, and his setting of pretty much everything, but um, his setting of The Road Not Taken in particular, I think, does a real disservice to the poem in elongating a lot of the phrases, kind of draws it out into this dirge-like quality instead of you know, the original spoken phrase at the beginning of the poem would probably sound something like, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could, etc., etc. And when Randall Thompson sets it, it sounds like, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both right so already we have this super elongated phrase by the time you get to could not travel both you have no idea where you started really and those first half notes opening the piece don't set up any real pace for the thing you have no anticipation of where you're going and so what he's created is a very beautiful choral piece and a beautiful melody but completely divorced from the pace of the poem as it originally stood and it sounds like it's not translating sort of the meaning or feeling of the poem in the same way i guess in the same way is the key phrase because i think it it's possible that in some abstract way it's travel it's uh translating the the same feeling of the journey or whatever but what the you're not the melody is sort of rising up but you get the sense of moving forward sure if you look at the whole piece i mean maybe not that particular setting i would probably argue that it doesn't do that but it, in general many settings of poems i think strive to capture the general feeling of the poem but what they don't do is capture any of the feeling of the phrasing of the poem and so you have there's no real sense of partnership or relationship between the words and music there's only an abstract intellectual partnership that's not really accessible i don't think to an audience unless you have the words right in front of you and can maybe you know, read and listen simultaneously. But that's that's asking also, I think, I think on some level, to me, that feels like an inappropriate intellectual abstraction <laughs> that um, if you're going to be using someone's poem um, as more, as as a tool to create meaning in your music, then that should be a primary focus and um, a focal point for the, the piece of music, not just kind of one random tool used in your arsenal. Because you set Robert Frost poems yourself, what sort of tools did you use to not fall into that trap of 
general intellectual abstraction, but to really be translating a little bit more directly into music what's going on in the words of the poem. I guess I focused um, really primarily on the melody. That to me felt like the, the key in kind of unlocking the same sense of the poem spoken um, musically. But so I would just, I mean, in starting to write music for these poems, I would say them over and over and over again to myself until I heard a little something and that little something would become develop into, you know, sometimes kind of a theme or maybe just the melody for the first line or something. Um, and that's really where I started. I just, I said the poem enough until I was kind of almost singing the poem and then I sang the poem and then I set um, accompaniment for all the melodies. Interesting. It's interesting that you point out melody because I think a lot of people might assume rhythm would be the first part that comes to you with a poem, particularly because poems so often are rhythmically oriented in their structure, whether they're free verse or some form of poem, the rhythm tends to be an important way, uh, an important part of how it's presented. And so I, I think it's very interesting that you point out the melody. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on rhythm versus melody, both in your own process and in general, how it's being translated. I guess that's actually a really interesting distinction to make because I felt like as a composer, I was not writing the rhythm. That mm. That is the piece that I was taking from the poet, was also not just the, the music or the, the words themselves, but also the rhythm and the cadence with which they were spoken. And so I never, I guess I never felt like I was writing rhythms except for my accompaniment. And occasionally when Frost had a very weird phrase that I couldn't figure out how to make fit into my um, time signature or whatever, you know, um, occasionally I ended up having to kind of invent rhythms in order to make things fit musically. But those were always the most awkward pieces of the songs that I ended up writing. Um, and really, you know, I ended up, I, I did a setting of Acquainted with the Night, that Frost poem, and his whole, the first line is, I have been one acquainted with the night. And so that was just, I mean, that's not exactly the rhythm that I used, but my rhythm ended up being... There's a little bit of a melisma in there that always trips me up if I'm trying to clap. <laughs> That's it, so okay, sorry. you can do it a couple times. <laughs> do it a couple times. But it was written in three, so it was, I have been one acquainted with the night. And I, I've just tried to keep it as close to that original phrasing as possible. So for you, the rhythm was sort of the part that was built in and you were structuring a melody over the rhythm of the poem. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that's why I felt like that was the important distinction that I was trying to make from what other composers had done. Not saying like, you know, this is the definitive way to set poems, but just saying that's, that to me was the way to best service Frost's poems because he was so concerned with making poetry colloquial and accessible in a lot of ways with with capturing the sound of the way people spoke to each other and I think 
how can you set a frost poem and eliminate that piece of it and still have it be a setting of a frost poem you know it's not really if you eliminate that very important part of the meaning that he was trying to convey it if you eliminate that sound of speech then you just have his words but very divorced from what he was trying to do and then independent of just your work with frost but in general your work thinking about and looking at music and poetry what do you think poetry stands to gain by having music as a component of its presentation because there have been many ways classical music jazz you know a lot of spoken word poetry crosses over into hip-hop what is added to poetry by having a musical component to it that's a good question. I don't think I answered that in my project all the way. Well, just your, your thoughts on that subject. Yeah. Because you've spent a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think poetry stands to gain quite a bit from integration with music. Um, you know, talking about what creates meaning in music is very complicated, weird business. Um and I don't know that I want to necessarily get too much into it, but I think there's a lot of ways in which music communicates that words can't. And adding a musical dimension to words that are already communicating something very poignant and profound and meaningful to a composer can be extraordinary and a really amazing way to um, say something meaningful and um, create something that people really connect to. Um, especially because so much poetry is in inaccessible language for people. It A lot of poetry is written in a kind of academic, intellectual, um, very elite world. <laughs> um, that many people don't have access to. You know, I, I don't, can't think of a person who I know from the very tiny town where I was living in Wisconsin who would read a Marianne Moore poem and get much out of it, you know? But, um, but music has a, a way of making those feelings accessible and some of the imagery accessible in a way that I think words on their own don't, can't always do which is really neat. I also think that poetry has a lot to lose <laughs> from being integrated with music, I think. Um, and that's kind of where the focus of my work with Frost <laughs> was. Um, Such a downer. Yeah. No, I, I don't mean to be a downer necessarily. I'm not saying like never set poems to music. That's terrible. You're doing a disservice to the poem. But I think so frequently, um, especially when they're not developed in concert, you know, if someone writes a poem and then you just take it and you put music to it, it can just, it can be a really rich experience. It can also really obfuscate the original meaning and purity and clarity of the poem. And, and some poems, you know, aren't meant to be set to music. There's a lot of poems that have visual components of the way they're, you know, oriented on the page or um, just all kinds of interesting elements of poetry that don't translate well to music. Because we touched on it earlier, I'd just be interested to ask about how you think of the difference between 
a poem set to music and lyrics, since often there are lyrics that are very poetic, and we talk about poetic lyrics as being a very good thing in a lot of music, and like that's, we find it very touching. What's different between having a poem that has been set to music than lyrics in a song? I guess when I, so the ultimate result of my project was um, the pieces of music that I wrote, but then also a paper kind of looking at the continuum of relationships between poetry and music. And so I was looking at and thinking about like old blues lyrics. You know, if you look at a song like I don't know. I'm trying to think of an example. Like the thrill is gone or something. You know, the the words just repeat over and over and over again, essentially. And there's like four lines in the song. Um, and so on the one hand, it's communicating something very powerful. Because, boy, you really hear that phrase. The thrill is gone over and over and over again. You really get the sense of thrill must really be gone kind of thing. But also, in a lot of ways, that phrase is um, just there for use and manipulation by the musician. They're, they're, um, the lyric is almost incidental because they're just using it to um, play the music of the blues, basically. And the thrill is gone, you know, could be substituted for any number of very similar phrases and in fact is in a lot of you know songs um so that's kind of like one example of a lyric it has meaning but that meaning is like very tied to the genre and the particular song and the way that it's sung and played and the whole um kind of performance aspect of the music and then I don't know. I feel like I'm going down a weird rabbit hole here. So, <laughs> great. Um, then you have songs where the lyric maybe stands a little bit more on its own, but is also still fairly simple. Um, and I don't know. But the the melody might be used for tone painting in the song or um, to kind of help develop the feeling of the lyric, that kind of thing. And then you have, you know, like kind of the far other end of like, like Bob Dylan, who's clearly writing lyrics, but also, you know, they're poems in and of themselves. But he didn't publish them in a book as poems. He played them with music. He obviously intended them to be played with music. So I I don't know. I don't have an answer <laughs> to your question, really. Of like, I think the idea of the continuum is very interesting. Yeah. And I think that, in a way, is an answer. That there's this... From using a lyric that could be replaced with almost any other lyric to get across your musical feeling message to... Mm -hmm marrying highly poetic lyrics to whom the melody becomes more and more incidental. It's true, but the melody... like, But it's still important. Right, and that's the thing. I guess what's interesting to me about Dylan is that obviously the melody isn't incidental because he didn't 
publish those on their own. You know, he he had some kind of such a clear relationship to him between the music that he'd written and the the words that he'd written, which are very arguably poems, that they couldn't be separated necessarily. He didn't publish them separately. So, I don't know. I find that really kind of bizarre. And I, I wonder if some of the other poets I I have read um, would consider themselves lyricists if they were musicians also. <laughs> Here is Ellie's full setting of Acquainted with the Night. I have been one acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in vain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. I have looked down the saddest city lane. I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes unwilling to explain. I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street but not to call me back or say goodbye and further still from an unearthly height. One luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. I'm happy to be joined by Brian Laidlaw. He's originally from San Francisco, now living in Minneapolis, and a serious poet as well as a singer-songwriter. His 2014 release, Amoratorium, is a hybrid poetry music project. It includes a vinyl LP with a poetry chapbook. His new book of poems, A Stuntman, from Milkweed Editions, comes with a companion album. In addition to his own writing and performing, he also serves on the songwriting faculty of the McNally Smith College of Music in St. Paul. Uh, when you started writing songs that were poetic, you really started setting your songs to music as an undergraduate. And I'm wondering how that came about, like what your process was when you first started doing this. Yeah, sure. It was... Um... The way the, that I described it to myself in my mind was thinking of it as translations. Um, so it would sort of begin, I'd look at the poem that I had just written. And um, the first step really, I guess, was to identify uh, what were the key images that would definitely want to be translated from the poem version to the song version. And then also um, more on a craft level than on an art level, 
just looking at what words were already in that poem that would be conducive to rhyming on. So I would, you know, say, oh, okay, well, I've got, you know, I, I, one of the first ones, this isn't a good song, but at the time I thought it was, but I had like a song about, you know, uh, a poem about black sheep. And so I knew the sheep, both the black sheep image was going to be in there. And also sheep is a good word to rhyme on because you got sheep and deep yes. and weep and all this stuff. So that would be my sort of like scaffolding. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I'd start building out verses based on the images I knew I needed to use and the rhymes that I knew I needed to use. Okay. So, um, so then uh, yeah. the song, you said translate. So the song isn't literally completely the original poem. It's, it's saying what the original poem says, but you moved it over to make it rhyme to sound more like what people are used to for a song. That's correct. That and I think, um, you know, the requirements of a poem and a song are different. I've found over time. Um, so what makes a successful poem and what makes a successful song, there are some overlaps for sure, but the biggest difference is that with a poem, um, the reader can move through it at whatever pace they want. Uh, so they can like dwell on a line or they can circle back or they can ruminate on something for a moment. Whereas with a song, they have no opportunity to do that. They're experiencing it at whatever tempo you deliver it to them. Right. Um, and so if you try to just sing a poem, the listener will get lost. It's too dense of information coming too fast, usually. And that's why you occasionally hear songwriters like set a poem by John Donne or set a poem by Yeats or something. And it's a beautiful project, but it's really hard to make it work mm -hmm. because it's just too much content. And so a lot of the time, really when I was like doing these translations, the goal was to kind of slow down the delivery of content mm -hmm. um, and extend an image that maybe was in one line in the poem and turn that image into a two or three line image in the song so that yeah. the listener can like dwell in it and wrap their mind around it and process it before you as the songwriter are cruising off to the next point. Yeah. Okay, um, that sounds absolutely right. I mean, it's it's just what you get at a poetry reading. I mean, yeah. at a poetry reading, the person reads the poem. If you missed it, they keep going. Yeah. Or if, if you were reading it, you you would be able to dwell on it, go back, read it again, whatever. I think that's kind of the thing you're saying. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's why the I, I mean, I love poetry readings. I love going to them and I love giving them. But at the same time, I, I feel more and more like they might just be a slightly imperfect format. Like I'm trying to figure out how to do a poetry reading that like does the right service to the work on the page. Yeah. Um, but it can be very awkward sometimes. Um, the other piece about it, you know, I, like I've been doing more readings and stuff like that since this book has just come out. And um, one of the big discoveries I've made is that the poems that have repetition in them are the ones that are most successful in a live setting. Um, so it, it, they're song-like in the sense that they have a refrain that comes back. And that was another thing in these translations that I used to do, you know, was like teasing out what's the most important point. And then that's gonna be the thing that gets promoted to the chorus essentially. Right. Um, and then, even if the listener gets nothing else from it, they'll at least get that because they hear they get it. get the hook, yeah. 
Okay, that, that, that all makes complete sense to me. Cause, cause I'm glad. I also, also, I perhaps, well, a part of uh, another thing with the readings, I think, is longer poems that give you more time to settle into what it's about. That also gives you more time to miss a few things and you still know what's going on. Yeah. You know, a really intense, you know, 15 or 20 line poem that's really image deep. Uh, it can easily miss some things. But if it's yeah. a long, like some slam poems, which are long narratives, and you know what, the, it's a, a nice story and you get it, you know, that takes yeah. three minutes to tell instead sure. of 30 seconds. And so slam that, poetry is um, written with time in mind. Like it's written with the listener's attention span as part of the equation. And so it's like, I mean, I think it's fantastic. And it also uses a lot of repetition and like structural formal repetition or parallelism to like make sure that the listener is right with you. I'm totally yeah. with you there. I think there's a lot to be learned from that for sure. Yeah. Uh, now the other thing I wanted to ask, oh yeah, you, you teach uh, songwriting. Yeah. And I was, I was wondering, uh, what you tell your students uh, about, or do you tell much about poetry with them and encourage them to read poetry to be better songwriters, or yeah. does it even come up? I don't know the way you. Yeah, approach man, it. it sure comes up in my class. I don't know that it comes up in anybody else's class. Um, my uh, my line on it is basically that even the best lyricists, um, by and large, are nowhere near as adept with language as the best poets. And so even if you're listening to fantastic lyricists all of the time, um, you're never going to transcend uh, the sort of like average songwriter level. Whereas if you're reading poets and trying to take their control of language and bring that to your songs, I think that's where you start to become an exceptional songwriter, like a special, amazing songwriter. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there are a few poets, I, like, do you know Letters to a Stranger by Thomas James? It was out of print and then yeah. Grey Wolf reprinted it. It's, it was the first book of poetry that I really fell in love with. And it was published in 1970 or something like that. He was a young guy when he wrote it. Um, but it has a lot of really beautiful slant rhyme in it. It's got like regular stanza structures, a lot of personification, um, and, uh, it's a great starting point for these students. It's one that I bring in a lot of poems from. Um, but yeah, just, you know, I mean, showing them what's possible and showing them like, I think that even in great pop songs, there's a lot of fluff. Like in any given four line verse, it feels like you could probably consolidate it to one good line and then you'd have room for three more good lines. <laughs> and a lot of students are inclined to just like have it be at that sort of low density amount of content in any given verse. And I think my main thing that I'm always pushing on them, they can say whatever they want, but just to like say it with full density, say it so there's no dead space in there. Oh, that's a cool concept. Full density <laughs> yeah. or a great phrase for the idea. Yeah. 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 Well, it, um, it works over time. You know, it's, it's, it's cool to see the way that they, uh, the way that Yeah, um, I I ask you to to pull out your guitar, and sure. we'll hope the audio is is good enough on this. You want to you want to try a stanza of something, that's an example of something you'd like 
to do, uh, whether you want to call it a poetic lyric, you know, uh, it seems sure. we have a continuum. You know, you have a pure, let's say just a poem over here. Then you have the, I guess, moon and June kind of a song over the other end. Yeah. And then between that there, there's a sort of poem song, song poem. Yeah, um, absolutely. Kind of lyric. We'll see what, uh, we'll see what comes out here. Yeah, I'll dive in. I'll just do an, an excerpt, a song excerpt. But I think this is one of the more sort of like dense, um, dense songs that I've written. And in that way makes it uh, farther toward the poem end of the, of the spectrum, yeah. despite it having a melody and whatnot. Tell me how your first love began. What's your inspiration for woman and man? When you cast them in your image, did you hold a scrimmage within? In preliminary thinking, did you have an inkling who would win? Well, what a way for love to begin. And then tell me how your first love split. With hot apple cider sweetening their spit. Their bodies getting wetter, ignoring every letter of the law. Well, if everybody's falling, then is that what we're calling a draw? Yeah. Yeah, what about that one, Pa? And it goes on from there. But, okay, yeah. yeah. I had a flash of Warren Zevon when you said scrimmage. Ah, would yeah, all, right. You would always drop in words you don't hear in songs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Devon or something or Davenport. I forget. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's Particularly great. Particularly yeah. seemed, what is that? You know, very interesting. Yeah, also, the it. internal rhymes. Uh, yeah, man. Now, you, some, you know, some biblical references. That's some real poetry stuff there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the another big, I'm, this is just coming to me right now, but I think that, um, you know, poems uh, require the listener to have some memory of what's happened previously in the poem. Um, whereas I think a lot of songs behave as, as if the listener is an amnesiac, kind of. So like the, the verses come and then they disappear and then a new verse comes and they disappear. And there's not necessarily a lot of linkage between the verse that you're hearing mm -hmm. and the sort of setup in previous verses. But I think that some of the things that, if there are things in particular that make my songs feel more poem-like, it's that I'm sort of stringing things from one verse to the next. So like with that one, it sets up the, the scrimmage thing in one verse, and then it comes back to the scrimmage with this idea of like it being a draw um, or is one of them going to win or whatever. So it's like, it has a, the song has a memory of mm -hmm. what's happened in it. I don't know if listeners really have that memory, but for me, it's very satisfying. <laughs>
Well, you know it's there, and that, that's yeah, a good right. feeling. Yeah. But interestingly, though, making the poem more, the song more poetic makes it more artistic. But what you're saying actually points out that there's a little increased left brain activity required to keep up with it. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought of that, and I don't I just, that interests me. Yeah. No, I think you're <laughs> it's exactly almost a paradox. Right. No, I know. And, you know, I think like, songs are just i mean i think of songs as being um a poetic form like in the same way that a sonnet is a poetic form that has um rules about where it rhymes and how long it is and what the meter is but it also has rules about the content like there's supposed to be a turn partway through um or like a limerick has like a rhyme scheme that you have to adhere to but it's also supposed to be gross um, I think that songs have like a sort of given form and they also have a given content that you're meant to, you know, it's supposed to be about love or maybe love plus death, kind of. And then those <laughs> two things are the uh, uh, acceptable subject matter. And then you have to have it in a form that is probably based on the number four. Like we've got sets of two or four and we've got, you know, a refrain and whatever. Anyway, so there's all these rules that make a song good. And I think that, yeah. you know, you have to respect those rules, whatever you're trying to say in it. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about the, uh, the new projects. I have to look here. Look here oh, on my sure. notes. Uh, uh, I got on from your website, you know, it said in, in 2014, you had a project called Armoratorium. Mm -hmm. And you called it a hybrid poetry music project. So, so yeah. what's that about? What's that? Well, so this is this is sort of the dream format for me to work in, and that was the first opportunity that I had to do like a full release um, in the way that I had always dreamed of. And so, basically, what it is is it's a you know a twelve by twelve um, record uh, liner note booklet that instead of having lyrics has a collection of about 20, you know, 20 or so poems. Um, and they're all about Bonnie and Clyde. Actually, the whole project is about Bonnie and Clyde and okay. um, talking about some of the parallels between um, their economic uh, sort of moment um, when they were active during the great depression and then drawing some parallels to, to some of the economics of um, our present day uh, economy. Um, and then the collection comes with a vinyl record, a LP of songs that are not the same text as the poems, but that are also about Bonnie and Clyde that serve as like a counterpoint to the poems. So it's like two sides of the same coin. Okay, you're reminding me of Haibun, where the haiku at the end of the prose is not supposed to say what the prose says. Yeah, that's great. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. That's fantastic. That's a great comparison. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what gave me, well, that was my question. I was wondering how much you were separating the two and they're they're on the same subject, but yeah. they're two different two different things. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, uh, I mean, I think there's more to it than this, but a good way to think of it is that the music is sort of like a soundtrack to the poems in the same way that like the soundtrack in a movie doesn't re-sing the dialogue of the movie or whatever you know it's just a, a sort of aesthetic right. um context for it yeah and i think broadly speaking you know 
again, as a huge generalization, I think that like the, the poems are a little more cerebral. They're a little more like of the mind and they're the um, sort of logical argument of the collection. And then the songs painting broadly are sort of more the emotional, they're like from the heart, they're mm -hmm. more immediate. Um, and they're, you know, the sort of the, the tearjerker part, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. And then you've got another project which is gonna be in the same vein coming out? Yeah, that's or is exactly it out? Right. We just celebrated the release of it actually. So it's, it exists now, which is great news. All right. Um, and it's called The Stunt Man. Um, and it was published by Milkweed Editions, which is a great publisher based in Minneapolis. Um, I had admired uh, many of the, the collections on their um, roster. And uh, I was just so thrilled to get to work with them on this. So it's, a, it's my first full length collection, you know, 80 pages or so. Um, and then it comes with a download code for a, a companion album, just like a moratorium did. Um, That's just very cool. Oh, thank you so very much. Very cool, you know, and being with Milkweed as, as well. That's also very cool. Yeah. 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 Well, and, you know, when we were talking before, you said very kindly that, like, I'm a real poet. It's very <laughs> nice of you to say. And I do feel like, um, you know, getting to work with Milkweed does lend a little bit more credibility to what I'm doing on the poetry side. Um, and then, you know, people can sort of take or leave the music. I hope that they'll take it. Um, but mm -hmm. the poetry is also sort of capable of, of standing on its own for the purists out there <laughs> who right. have nothing to do with music. Yeah. And, and uh, do you have any poems handy? It'd be nice to hear a poem uh, yeah. before we wrap up. I would be I'm delighted. Happy. Good. Excellent. Excellent. I'll read one. Uh, like we were talking before about how like it's conducive to have um, some repetition in these things. I'll read a poem that has some repetition in it. And I should set it up by saying the whole collection um, is sort of inspired by the Iron Range in northern Minnesota, um, which is a place that I've spent a lot of time. And uh, specifically, it's about um, Bob Dylan's upbringing and his mythology up there. Okay. Um, he's from Hibbing, and he has a very tumultuous relationship with Hibbing where he's pretty vocal about hating it people in Hibbing are sort of split down the middle, whether they want to like love Bob Dylan and embrace him as their, you know, golden yeah. boy, or to say like, he's a hippie weirdo and we're not too into him. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it also is the site of the largest um, open pit iron mine in North America and the second largest one in the world. It looks like the Grand Canyon. Um, so this is a poem about, uh, about that, part of the, that part of the state is called Upstate Mother's Refrain. And it makes a reference to the fact that the, the water there is so iron rich that it stains everybody's bathtubs and sinks and toilets bright red. Um, so, Upstate Mother's Refrain. I know all the dishware is stained glass, all the laundry's rosy wash. I know our well and our iron are all we have. I know one sameness. Let's imagine iron turns everything red. No, I don't have to imagine. I know our red teeth are dull red. I know where the rabbit pauses to overlook and decide it's not worth it. Goodbye. Mother chops wood, so does brother. I know her trapezoid makeup, her charming footing. 
I know we come across as sickly in our fortifications. I know the pomp and contemplate flush, contemplate roan. Mother chops wood, so does brother. I know the tart iron water is reaming the well poles. I know freshwater sharks. I know haters and orphans. I know patriot atheists. Let's imagine iron turns everything red. No, I don't have to imagine. I know the toilet bowl is ruby-like. I know we are good neighbors. I know we are low on the list of places to bomb. I know our bloody hair. Mother chops wood, so does brother. I know fruitless toil. I know God like a foreman. I know pride like an animal circling a carcass. And I know no anemics. Let's imagine iron turns everything red. No, I don't have to imagine. I know mothers staring out windows, counting days till something auspicious befalls them. I know it is pointless to clean when our blood looks so clean and our water looks so dirty. I know mothers who, like fire, work till the instant they die. That, you know what, what's really interesting is it's, it's like that's a list poem, but doesn't sound like a list poem. <laughs> yeah. Somehow you've slipped in some little variety there that doesn't make it really sound like as much of a list poem as maybe I would think it is if I read it on the page. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it has yeah. a little, it somehow sneaks in a little bit of forward momentum despite it yeah. being, yeah, functionally a list. And patriotic atheists is pretty hot. <laughs> In Thanks, my man. Book, in my book, I mean, come on. Yeah, that's an extremely slanted rhyme. Yeah, right. And that's always great. Yeah. Thanks, man. Okay. Well, this is this has been really really great talking to you. I've totally enjoyed it, and oh, uh, hearing your music and your poetry, and your views on uh, on music and poetry. Well, you are too kind, man. It's really a pleasure. Thank you so much. In the final part of today's podcast, we will look at famous poets who have blurred the line between poetry and song in their delivery or in their writing style. Famed Irish poet William Butler Yeats, shortly before his death, commented, I have spent my life in clearing out of poetry every phrase written for the eye and bringing all back to syntax that is for the ear alone. Yeats's interest in and apparent preference for spoken poetry over the written word shows up in the way that he delivers his poems when reading, sometimes in an odd, lilting, almost sing-song cadence. Here is one example. This recording of Yeats's poem, Song of the Old Mother, was captured in 1934. The recording quality is not particularly good, but it still illustrates well how Yeats would deliver a poem. I rise in the dawn and I kneel and blow through the seeds of the fire, till the sun glow. And then I must scrub and bake and sweep, till stars are beginning to blink and peep. But the young lie long and dream in their bed of the matching of ribbons for bosom and head. Their day goes over in idleness. They sigh if the wind but lift of a dress, while I must work because I am old, and the seed of the fire gets feeble and cold.
Allen Ginsberg was a central figure among the beat writers in the 1950s. He's perhaps best known for his classic poem, Howl, first performed in 1956 at the infamous Six Gallery reading in San Francisco. When the poem was published, the book helped secure Lawrence Ferlinghetti's City Lights Press due to the huge publicity generated by the book's obscenity trial. Ultimately, the courts declared the book was not obscene and protected by the First Amendment. Ginsburg was an engaging performer who constantly toured the country and the world, giving readings during which he frequently involved music. He recorded several albums, including one with music he'd written to accompany William Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience. He performed on stage with many well-known musicians, including people like Bob Dylan and Patti Smith. He collaborated with Philip Glass to set music to portions of Howl and another of his well-known poems, Wichita Vortex Sutra. He often accompanied himself on harmonium, an accordion-like instrument he played sitting down, squeezing it with one hand, working the keyboard with the other. The recording we're about to hear, Father Death Blues, is a contemplation of his father's death and death in general. The poem expresses Ginsberg's Buddhist acceptance of the inevitable. Ginsberg presents the poem as a dirge-like chant, and in so doing, creates a musical presentation that complements and supports the words of the poem. Allen Ginsberg, Father Death Blues. And my father died while I was in uh, Naropa Institute teaching after being away for several weeks. And so I flew home to the funeral <coughs> and wrote a song, or a father, Father Death Blues. Hey, Father Death, I'm flying home. Hey, poor man, you're all alone. Hey, old daddy, I know where I'm going. Father Death, don't cry anymore. Mama's there underneath the floor. Brother Death, please mind the store. Old Auntie Death, don't hide your bones. Old Uncle Death, I hear your groans. Oh, Sister Death, how sweet your moans. Oh, Children deaths, go breathe your breaths. Sobbing breasts will ease your deaths. Pain is gone, tears take the rest. Genius death, your art is done. Lover death, your body's gone. Father death. I'm coming home. Guru Death, your words are true. Teacher Death, I do thank you for inspiring me to sing this blues. Buddha Death, I wake with you. Dharma Death, your mind is 
song her death will work it through Suffering is what was born Ignorance made me forlorn Tearful truths I cannot scorn Father breath once more farewell Birth you gave was no thing ill My heart is still as time will You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. <laughs>